Uh, let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that we come together, Lord, to uh, worship you, to sing your praises, and Lord, to sit at your feet, to hear your word. I pray your spirit would teach us, speak to our hearts and minds and into our lives, Lord, and that, Lord, you'd also be in our fellowship time afterwards, that your spirit would bring us together in fellowship with one heart, one mind, And Lord, we just uh, give you praise. And Lord, we just set this time aside for you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Uh, Immediately after my senior year of high school, I was invited to go skydiving with a high school friend of mine. Now, it's kind of interesting. Uh, My mom is here today. And so uh, I didn't know she'd be here. I wasn't sure, but I'm going to share this story anyways. Um, For all you young people, you think you're going to get away with what your parents don't know. Life has a funny way to come full circle, okay? But um, so I always wanted to go skydiving, and a friend of mine, her family always went skydiving. So I was like, oh, that'd be so great. So they invited me to go. So um, I think it was right, you know, shortly after we graduated that summer, a dream come true. I went skydiving. And so, I don't know, how many of you have ever been skydiving? Only me. One other person. Okay. We are in the less than 1% here. Um, so, before you jump, you obviously, you need to learn something. So, you watch a training video. A video about, like, how to do it, when you do it, all the safety procedures and so forth. So there's different steps you got to do, right? And eventually you, you, you get your suit on, you get your gear on, you go through all those procedures, you learn how to pull the cord, when to pull the cord, and so forth, right? So you strap onto your guide, you have somebody, the first time you go, you have somebody piggybacked on you, so you strap on, and you head onto the plane, and off you go some 15,000 feet or so up in the air. Am I making this appealing to you all? I don't know. Well, as you go up, the ground becomes smaller and smaller as you go high into the air, as you fly among the clouds, right? You approach, the, the door opens on the plane. There's this thrill and rush, right? So the door opens, so you and your guide, you're walking towards the door. And then on go, you get ready. So when you're, you're really at the door of an open door of a plane thousands of feet in the air, And as you look down, all you see is the clouds. And then on go, you just jump. Now when you jump, you're not like flailing your arms and legs like as if you're falling out from the sky. You learn how to open your arms up, right? Our guide, we, we spun first before we did that. So jumping out of the plane, we're spinning down. A friend of mine, when she jumped, she, she tumbled down. I'm like, oh, that would have been so great, you know? So as you go, as you're flying down, and then your arms spread out, you're hurling, I forgot how fast you're going down, and you're just feeling, you know, your skin of your face flapping in the air. You know, I realize when you watch movies, when characters are flying down, flying out in in space, whatever, and their face is just pristine, that's not realistic. Your face flaps in the air, right? Very attractive. So as you're flying down, and then finally you pull the cord, and then boom, you got this beautiful eight-minute or so parachute ride as you're flying down to the ground. Amazing experience. 
Some of your parents are like, please don't tell my kid about this. They're probably going to be the one to do this. Why do I share this story? Well, my life was in the hands of several strangers, right? I did not triple check the background or the, I didn't triple check the equipment first. I didn't check to see if there's any torn cords or loose buckles or that there was making sure that there was a parachute in all the bags, you know, stuff like that. I didn't triple check the equipment. At least I don't remember doing that. I didn't do a background check on my guide who's on my back, whose my life is in his hands. I didn't ask him, like, hey, you know, uh, so uh, you have any criminal background? Can, can I put my life in your hands? You know, I didn't do a background check on the pilot. Who is this pilot who's flying us up thousands of uh, feet in the air? Now, we, we took uh, my oldest daughter for her 21st birthday skydiving. I did look up the company to make sure what is their safety record, you know? You know, making sure that they're not a 50-50 thing, you know? Some, we lost some, we gained some, it's okay. You know, I, I made sure that their company was okay. I think I even talked to the guys, so like, so uh, how long have you been doing this? Wanted to make sure. But for myself, I, I was young, I didn't even think about it. Right? I didn't do those background checks. I didn't check to make sure that they were capable because I just assumed I trusted that I was in capable hands. I assumed and hoped they knew what they were doing. That they didn't just go, well, I think this is high enough. <laughs> go ahead and jump, right? I assumed that everything was going to be okay. I do remember thinking when I'm up in the air, thinking, praying like, all right, God, I know I'm ultimately in your hands, so I'm going to trust I'm going to land safely on that ground, but if I don't, yeah, at least I have one more thrill before I go, you know? That was kind of my thinking. But we place a lot of trust and faith often in strangers, in people. We put our life in other people's hands, and most of the time, we don't even think about it. We don't even give it a second thought. And it makes me wonder, do we afford God that same, even that same level of trust and faith? Do we afford God that same level of trust and faith? I say, you know what, God, I'm not even going to think about it. I trust you. I believe in you. These next two passages, two messages, are an interesting contrast, these next two passages. Today, we're going to see examples of desperate faith. And the consequences of having such faith. Next week, we're going to look at the opposite. We're going to see the effects of stubborn unbelief. And the effects of unbelief. And so like each time we're going through Mark, I'm going to challenge us and ask us, where do we fit in the story? As we're going through these stories, this narrative of Mark, Jesus' journey to the cross, as we're seeing these people, I will encourage you to ask you, where do you fit in this story? Do you resemble any of these people in this story? So last week we saw, if you're with us, we saw the lengths Jesus will go for one person. This one mission of mercy. He went and healed, delivered this one man, this demon-possessed man. But out of that one mission of mercy for one person came countless of people to hear the testimony of what Jesus did for this one man, as he went and he reported to, the, to all of the region. 
So Jesus' mission of mercy for one end up being a mission that reports to all the region or the area, whoever he spoke to. Today we're going to look at a two-for-one story, two healing miracles in one sitting. And we're going to see the lengths that people will go for a miracle. So if you have your Bibles, you could turn to Mark chapter 5. Mark 5. We're picking up at verse 21. And it reads like this. And when Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered about him, and he stayed by the seashore. If you remember weeks ago, the crowd of the multitude, Jesus left a crowd of people, and he went across the Sea of Galilee, right? And he delivered this man who was demon-possessed. And he sailed at night, and there was a, the, the great winds and the storm we talked about, or Henry mentioned that in the worship this morning. And then the people, after they saw that the man who was demon-possessed was freed, they feared Jesus. They feared his power, and they begged him, can you just leave our area? We don't, we're, we, we, just, just go. Take you, your power, whoever you are, and leave our area. So now Jesus returns, and Mark describes it as he returns to a great multitude. The crowd grew. Now this word that Mark uses, this adjective, polis, he uses this nine times in this chapter. And he uses it to describe whether it's magnitude, size, degree. Think of it as today we use the word crazy. Right? We use the word crazy in different contexts. We may say there was a crazy amount of people. What do we mean by that? Are we saying that all these people were nuts? No, right? We're thinking about a huge amount of people. Or we can say something like, he was screaming like crazy. What does that mean? Loudly, passionately. Or my parents are crazy strict. What do you mean by that? Now, some of you may think, well, they're crazy, right? But usually we're describing like they're very strict, right? So we can use this word crazy very in different ways. Mark uses this word to really paint a picture and describe what's going on. So Jesus left a crowd. When he comes back, the crowd is even bigger. Verse 22. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and upon seeing him, fell at his feet and entreated him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her, that she may get well and live. And we went off with him, and a great multitude was following him and pressing in on him. So here Jairus is an official of a synagogue, probably a local synagogue. His duties may resemble a lot of maybe deacons and elders in many churches today taking care of the physical uh, uh, necessary things for service, right? A lot of deacons and elders or helpers, some of you helped out setting up things, setting up communion, setting up the audio equipment. He may have had the duty of arranging speakers or, or checking on the speakers, things like that. So he was an official of the synagogue. And it was very likely that Jesus, at some point in time, they may have appeared in one of his local synagogues, right? Because we've seen in the past that Jesus traveled to the different synagogues. 
And so this person would know that there's something controversial about Jesus. Remember, the people in the synagogues, the leaders and stuff, they're like, who is this Jesus? Despite his controversy, this controversy surrounding Jesus and his critics, Jairus was in need. And he seeks out Jesus. Not only does this synagogue official seek out Jesus, what does he do? He falls at his feet and begs before Jesus. A synagogue official takes his humbled position before Jesus. And what does he say? He says, my little daughter is at the point of death. Please come lay your hands on her that she may be well and live. Jesus pleads to Jesus to save his little daughter from death. These two words, these Greek words that Jairus says to Jesus, he's begging him to save her and also to help her live, that she may live. And the way he says it is conditional. What's the condition of her being well to being saved and to live? The condition is, if you come and touch her, she will be well. Notice Jairus doesn't go to Jesus and say, do you think you will be, be able to heal her? He doesn't go to Jesus and say, look, Jesus, here's the situation. My daughter, this is what she's been struggling with. Do you think you can do something about it? Do you think you have enough power to heal her? No, his comment is one of confidence. He says, she will be well if you come and heal her. So what, is ha- what happens? Jesus goes with Jairus, and the great multitude follows Jesus, pressing on him. Think of the scene as like a celebrity going through paparazzi or a crowd of people. You have a whole bunch of people trying to touch Jesus, Right? just to get close to him, hear what he has to say. So here's this scene. Jesus agrees to go with Jairus, and they're going along the way. Verse 25. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and had endured much at the hands of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was not helped at all, but rather had grown worse. And after hearing about Jesus, came up in the crowd behind him And touched his cloak, for she thought, if I just touch his garments, I shall get well. So while Jesus is walking, and the crowd of people is pressing around him, a woman comes into the picture. She's been having a blood flow issue, a hemorrhaging issue for 12 years This woman spent all she had trying to get healed, went to doctors after doctors, and all that it did was make her feel worse. But she heard about Jesus. Some of you can relate to this. You can relate to suffering for years. Some of you can relate to having such physical problems and you've tried to find doctor after doctor after doctor. And for some of you, all that it's led you to feel is worse. There's so many people who spend all that they have just to get better. Many of you don't have to imagine 
too much to understand what it means to suffer for years and years and have no solution. This unnamed woman hears of Jesus and seizes the opportunity. Notice what she thought. She thought, if I just touch his cloak, I will get well. I will live. The woman knew that she just, if she just touches that garment, she will be saved. She will be made whole. This same word that she says is the same word Jairus uses about his daughter. He says with confidence, Jesus, if you go and touch her, she will be saved. She will be made whole. And this is the same word this woman says. If I just touch Jesus' garments, I will be saved. I just need to touch his cloak. Verse 29, And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power proceeding from him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the multitude pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? The woman fights through the crowd, touches the back of Jesus' cloak while everyone is pressing around him, and immediately the flow of blood stopped. She felt she was healed of her affliction, affliction, and she was made whole. I like this word that describes her healing to cure, to heal, to make whole. This is used in a perfect tense, meaning that the action was done, it was complete, once and for all, did not need to be repeated. Some of us know what it's like to be healed for temporary, for a period of time, it was paused for a moment, and then the symptoms come back. For this woman, she was healed once for all and not needed again. However, something happened the woman did not plan on. Despite all the people pressing around him, Jesus felt he knew, he perceived, someone touched me, someone got healed. And he turns around the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And those the disciples think, that's a weird question, Jesus. You're around all these people, they're pressing in on you, and you're asking, who touched you? Uh, Jesus? Everyone? (laughs) Everyone is touching? Everyone is pressing on. What do you mean, who? Verse 32. And he looked around to see the woman who had done this, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Imagine being this woman. You're thinking, I'm not going to tell anybody. I'm not going to go. I just need to squeeze it and touch him and I'll be healed. Jesus turns and sees the woman. The woman was caught. Caught red-handed, if you will. No pun intended. Ever get caught with your hands caught in the cookie jar? You ever had that happen? Maybe you're a little kid. You weren't supposed to get into the cookies or something like that. Have you ever seen those viral videos of parents who record their kids? 
They caught them going into the kitchen or doing something they weren't supposed to do, right? They're going in and getting a cookie or something like that, and the camera, the parent is just watching. And as soon as they, they do it, the parent says, what are you doing? And the kid just shockingly turns around automatically. You see the fear on their face. And they just start crying. Like, ah! And they cry. I love that. I love when the kids, their response is, oh, I'm sorry. Some kids get all mad. I don't like that. Like, don't get mad at me for you being caught, right? But this woman gets caught. And what is her response? She responds with fear and trembling. The woman doesn't run for it, although that would be kind of a funny scene. Maybe some of us would have done that. We touch Jesus. Jesus turns around and says, who did that? And you're like, I'm out of here. You, you go through the crowd. Jesus will never know who I am. I'm just going to run. I'm going to run for it. Well, that would have been a funny scene. She doesn't. In fear and trembling, falls on her feet before Jesus. And she humbly tells Jesus the truth. Now, why was this woman so afraid? Legally, in terms of Jewish law, if she had a blood flow issue, a condition with her blood flow, that would deem her unclean. And imagine if she was unclean, if she was to touch somebody else, that person would be unclean. You can imagine if you had this issue and you were unclean for 12 years, imagine what that does with your heart and your mind. Knowing if you touch somebody, they would be considered unclean. Yet she goes, that's why she did it in secret. She didn't go to ask Jesus. She did it in secret. She snuck up behind. But isn't this such medicine for our hearts? Notice what she did. She just spoke truthfully to Jesus. I read this over. I'm like, you know, that is such medicine for our hearts, for us to know that we can speak truthfully to God. We can speak truthfully about what we are suffering with, what we're going through. And we can trust God with the truthfulness of our hearts. We don't have to lie to him. We're not informing him of something as if God doesn't know. Sometimes we think if we don't tell God, he won't know. God's like, I know. You're not telling me anything I don't know. But it's medicine for our hearts to know we can be truthful with God. We can speak openly more than we can ever speak with anybody else. More than our spouse, more than our best friend, more than anybody on earth. We can be so vulnerable before God and trust him with the honesty of our hearts. Look what verse 34, what happens? And Jesus said to her, get out of here. No. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Jesus calls her daughter and declares your faith has made you 
well. Go in peace. Jesus acknowledges her faith. Literally, your faith saved. This is going to have significant meaning in next week's passage when we talk about unbelief. But Jesus tells, him, tells her, go in peace and be restored. Be healed of your affliction. I love this. Here is a woman who has been suffering for 12 years. Unclean due to her condition. She feared Jesus' response. He looks at her, hears her, allows her to tell him all that she has experienced. And he says, be at peace. Go in peace. Continue to live in peace. Continue to be well. Imagine the burden lifted off this woman's shoulders. For those of you who understand what it means to suffer and suffer for years, you know the burden and the chaos that goes on inside. And here, this woman who is afraid to even say it to Jesus or even to ask of Jesus, Jesus turns to her and says, Daughter, go in peace. Don't worry any longer. You are well. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue officials saying, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. We go from one dramatic, miraculous moment to another. People come from Jairus' home and they go to him and they give this report and say, Jairus, it's too late. Your daughter died. No need to trouble the teacher anymore. No need to go any further anymore. Now, if I was in Jairus' shoes, if you were in Jairus' shoes, you're a parent, I would imagine my heart would drop and break. You're so close to a miracle. You're on your way to the house and you get the report, your daughter has already died. No need for Jesus to come to the home. Jesus steps in. He overhears what they say and what's his message to Jairus? Do not fear. Keep on believing. Or in other words, only believe. Don't listen to them. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Now, how difficult would it be if we were in his shoes to lose faith? I'd admit, (laughs) I don't know if I would continue to believe. It would be so hard if I was in his shoes to not be afraid and keep on believing. Verse 37, and Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he beheld a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. 
From this point on, Jesus only allows Peter, James, and John to follow him. The crowd, even the other disciples, they weren't allowed to go any further. Just those three. And upon arrival at the house, there was this loud uproar, this much wailing and weeping. Now, it was customary in that time, if there was a, you had a loved one who passed away, that they would hire professional mourners. They would hire people to come and wail and weep on behalf of the person, of the family, the person who died. Now, some of us may think, well, that's a little strange. Some customs still do that today, right? It's kind of out of respect for the person who, who passed away. Maybe you have a small crowd, When our family, extended family, someone passed away, we didn't have that problem. We had such a big family. We had a lot of people. I've been in certain circumstances where family only has a few people. But for whatever it is, if this was someone of status, they might hire somebody to mourn and to wail, to make loud noise, to weep and wail out of respect of somebody or their family. So Jesus comes and there are these people who are mourning and weeping, making this loud commotion. And entering, verse 39, Jesus said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him and putting them all out. He took along the child's father and mother and his companions and entered the room where the child was. So Jesus comes onto the scene, sees all this commotion, people wailing and weeping. And Jesus says, Why is all this loud noise? This child is not dead, just asleep. And the crowd turns from wailing and weeping to scornfully laughing at Jesus. See, so he made this quick shift from mourning to like, what? <laughs> You're crazy. You're ridiculous. Are you out of your mind? She's dead. What do you mean asleep? And they start scornfully laughing at Jesus. You see the level of disrespect and disregard of Jesus. Jesus responds. I love how he responds. You know how he responds? Kicks him out. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> you don't need to go, go home, right? You're not needed here in this service. All right, Jesus did not literally say that, not that I know of, so don't quote me on that, but that's just what I'm imagining. People were sent away And he only takes the mom, the dad, and the three disciples, Peter, James, and John. Remember what Jesus told Jairus? Only believe. Only believe. Verse 41. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated in Aramaic, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl rose and began to walk. For she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said something should be given her to eat. Jesus takes the girl by the hand and says to her, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl stands up and walks around. And immediately They're astounded. They're flabbergasted, mind blown, a mix of awe and fear of what just took place. Now, I think it's interesting. Jesus said to them, go give her something to eat. 
Now, immediately, my reaction was, oh, that's so cool, Jesus, you know, taking care of her physical needs. I'm sure she was sick for a long time, needs some food. That's my Savior. Always thinking about food, right? That's a good thing. But I think there's something more significant to that because according to the custom of the time, in that time between death and burial, this time of deep grief, whoever is mourning, they must not eat in the same house as the one who died unless there's on the Sabbath or on a holy day. They must not eat in company or eat among the person who died. So I think it's significant that Jesus says, give her something to eat. I know there's another statement of certainty that your daughter who was dead is not dead anymore. She is alive. She is alive. Jesus gives another interesting uh, instruction. He tells them, don't tell anyone about this. Now, I think this is going to be a little difficult to do. If you've ever had good news, that's really hard to keep it to yourselves. Okay, their daughter was dead and now is alive. But Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone about this. It's interesting because if you remember the last story we saw, when Jesus delivered the man from the demons, what did he tell them? Go and tell people about what happened to you. Tell of the mercy that you've received. It's interesting that contrasts this difference. To a Gentile scene, he tells us, man, you tell people. You tell them what you experienced. Tell them about the Lord. Tell them about the mercy. And he went on to speak of what the mercy that Jesus gave him and showed him. But here among a Jewish crowd, he says, I don't want you to tell anybody about it. That seems kind of odd. But Jesus had a timing for his revealing. It wasn't time yet for him to be fully revealed to the Jewish people. There was a work to be done. So you look at these two stories that we saw as back to back. I don't know if you, again, I served before in school. I wasn't real a big literature guy. I didn't like studying and analyzing lit. I don't know if any of you do. But when it comes to studying the Bible, all of a sudden, I'm kind of like, wow, this is cool. I love seeing parallels. I love seeing contrast. I love seeing how stories fit together and how they compare. So I wanted to kind of share, look at these two stories, these two passages we looked in these two weeks. Do some comparison and contrast. I think it's kind of interesting. Hopefully, you'll find it interesting. If you remember last story, Jesus sailed across the Sea of Galilee, and along the way, Jesus quieted the storm. Then Jesus delivered the demon-possessed man, and he instructs the man to share. In contrast, in in comparing contrast in this this week's message, Jesus travels to Jairus' home. Jesus heals a woman along the way. Jesus heals Jairus' daughter, but this time he says, I don't want you to report or to share. We see about Jesus' power and authority in these these last two weeks. We saw Jesus speak to the winds and the waves, and they obeyed. We saw that Jesus spoke, and the demons were cast out into pigs. We saw Jesus speak, and the woman is made well. Jesus speaks, and the girl is made alive. We see Jesus has divine power and authority over creation. He has power and authority over the demonic, over the spiritual realm. 
He has power and authority over sickness. And here we see Jesus had power and authority over life and death. You see the picture Mark is trying to portray for us, trying to help us show Jesus was not just another man. We see how Jesus, or we see how the many people begged Jesus. The demon-possessed man begged Jesus not to send the demons out of the country. The demons begged Jesus not to send them into the or to send them into the swine. The townspeople begged Jesus to leave their area. And then Jairus begs Jesus to come heal his daughter. We look at the responses of Jesus in the last two stories. And they became very much afraid and said to one another, who is this person in the boat? The disciples, they responded to Jesus uh, quieting the winds and the waves. And they were fearful. Who is this man? And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. The demon-possessed man, even though he was possessed by demons, goes before Jesus and bows before him. Chapter 5, verse 15, and they came to Jesus and observed the man, and they became frightened. The townspeople, when they saw what Jesus did, were frightened. And when the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, fell at his feet and earnestly begged him. But the woman, fearing and trembling, fell down before Jesus. And then lastly, immediately, they were completely astounded. Mark is painting this picture of who Jesus is and just the people's reaction to Jesus was one of fear and honor and awe. Some comparisons of these two passages we read today. Jesus is touched by the woman. Jesus touches the little girl. The woman suffered for 12 years and the little girl was 12 years old. Both the woman and the daughter was referred to as daughter. Now Jairus' daughter was the same age as our youngest daughter is now. That kind of hit home to me. I can picture that a little bit. Some of you, you have, parents, or you have kids around the same age. Luke mentions that Jairus' daughter was his only daughter. So this hits home a little bit. So when Jairus says, my little girl is at the point of death, I can relate. My little girl, if my little girl was at the point of death, I would be desperate too. Now when I say little girl, it's not because Michaela's little. She's our youngest, so we kind of affectionately refer to her as our little girl, right? But some of you can relate the desperation. It's interesting that she was 12 years old and this woman suffered for 12 years. What's the deal with 12 I don't know. There's 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel. This woman suffered for 12 years. This little girl was 12 years old. What's the connection? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Some may say that the number 12 signifies completeness and unity. Perhaps that's meaning. What I want us to take away with, some things to marinate on. Someone reminded me, I haven't said marinate in a while. Here it is. What do I mean by marinate? Something to let you think about. Let it flavor your mind and your thoughts, just like marinade is. If you're barbecuing this week, maybe you already started marinating for tomorrow, right? You want that flavor to sink into the meat, 
So when you bite into it, it flavors it, right? I'm hungry. So marinate. Some things to think about. The role of faith in our life. One, faith in Jesus should be one of certainty of who he is and of his power. We're not Christians because of our faith in other Christians. We don't have faith in Christ because of our church. We should have faith in Christ for who he is. See, a lot of people criticize Christians because, well, they put their faith in other people. We're not placing our faith in Christ because of other people or in our local church, but of who Christ is. The faith of Jairus and the woman was one of certainty because they were certain of who Jesus is and what he had done. So they believed in Jesus and what he would be able to do. The second thing, faith drives our decisions. Jairus and the woman were desperate, but they had a faith in Jesus that led them to go before Jesus. Jairus, was, he, he had some status, and the people around him, his peers, did not look favorably upon Jesus. But that faith in Jesus drove him to say, I need to go humbly before Jesus and ask him, beg him, Jesus, come heal my daughter. The woman heard of Jesus and said, Jesus can heal me. I just need to go and touch his cloak. See, faith in Jesus drives us, should drive our decisions. We should make decisions based on, you know what, my faith in Christ. Not so much my faith in other people. Not so much my faith in what other people may think. My faith in Christ drives me. Third thing, bold and fearless faith. Faith and fear combat each other. That's why Jesus said, do not fear, Jairus. Only believe. Because fear and faith are always in combat. Always in conflict with each other. But their desperation led to a bold faith. Jesus answered the woman's fear with an assurance of peace. Don't fear anymore. Go in peace and in wholeness. We're going to continue to face circumstances when our faith and our fear are in conflict with each other. And we need to always remember Jesus' words to, this one, or to Jairus. Don't fear, just believe. I'm here. Last thing, faith opens the door for us to experience God's work in our life. I've said this many times. I'm going to continue to reiterate this because we always need to be remembered. Faith opens that door for us to experience God's work in our life. Jairus and the woman had that faith in Jesus. Jesus acknowledged the woman's faith. It wasn't her faith itself that had healing power, but her faith allowed her to go before Jesus to experience Jesus' power. And I want to encourage us to live with a faith that believes in who he is. If you want to see more of God in your life, 
You need to be willing to live in faith. To live by faith. We're going to see the opposite of this next week. The effects of unbelief. The effects of what unbelief can have in our life. But I encourage you all, if you want to see more of Jesus, more of God's work in your life, you have to learn to trust in him. To believe in him. Believe in who he is and what he has done. I'm glad that I didn't look at all the circumstances after summer and uh, decide, you know what, that's a little too risky. I am not going to go skydiving. I don't know these people. I don't know this equipment. I'm not going to go. I'm not saying you all have to do this. You don't all have to skydive. And I may pay the price for this story later. But I will say this. May our trust and faith be in the Lord so that we may see the goodness of God active in our life. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are trustworthy. That we can place our faith in who you are, Jesus. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone suffering right now, who are struggling right now, I pray you would meet them where they are. We do pray for your healing hand. We do pray for your restoration. We do pray, Lord God, that if there's a miracle that is needed, that, Lord, they would see you at work in their life. At the same time, Lord, may our faith not be in the results of our prayers, whether they get answered or not. Certainly the way we would want it to. Because, Lord, you are the same. You are still God. May we be able to sing as we sing, it is well with my soul. We thank you, Lord God, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.